Welcome to the Faith and Grief Podcast, where we explore the intersection of faith and grief. We hope the stories and interviews you hear provide some comfort and hope on your grief journey. Faith and Grief is a nonprofit that provides grief support programs across the country in person and online. Learn more at faithandgrief.org. On today's episode, we're joined by Reverend Michael W. Waters, and we're going to discuss his new children's book, For Beautiful Black Boys Who Dream of a Better World. Michael's an award-winning author, activist, professor, and pastor. He's a sought-after speaker, both on national and international audiences, and is a frequent social commentator on major news outlets. He was named one of America's emerging leaders by Ebony Magazine and has received multiple honors for his work in peace and justice. We want to welcome Michael to the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to write a kid's book um, Mm. because I think for so many kids, this is a very confusing time. It's confusing for us as adults. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Um, And we're supposed to be the ones to to have the answers and protect them and uh, listen to them. And sometimes we don't always have the answers. Um, Well, I think beyond having the answers, we have a call to be present and to work together to, to find them. And really that's the hope of this book. Mm. Uh, it's not that uh, you have this omniscient presence who knows all things, right? Um, but as parents, I think our greatest ministry is to be present and to be supportive of our young people and even trusted adults, to be supportive of young people as we are seeking out answers and as we are seeking out solutions the challenges that uh, we face. And uh, that was the hope and intention of Beautiful Black Boys, more so than just providing a manuscript with ready-made answers. I mean, there are some things that the book proposes that would be helpful in bending the arc towards justice. But really, this book, I pray, is helping uh, families, helping Uh, teachers uh, in virtual classrooms, helping Mm. Sunday school teachers, helping them create a space uh, that is safe and appropriate for this type of dialogue that can hopefully spark greater action going forward. And so that's the intent and hope for the book. Um, I think it's a great deal of pressure to put upon yourself uh, to feel like you have all the answers. These are somewhat complex issues before us. Uh, but there are some some true solutions that I believe we can seek out. And I think that children, frankly, have the uh, creativity and genius to really blaze a path forward. I think that's so true. Thank you for saying that, because I think kids do have, um, they understand fairness. They understand love. They understand some things that as we get older, we don't always remember. It's like, because we've got so many other things in our head, it blocks us from remembering who we really are, what we really believe, uh, where kids don't have that. Um, that's a, a gift that they get for so long. Um, and Hopefully they get it long enough that they can appreciate it when they get to be our age. Absolutely. Well, children are truth tellers and uh, they don't politicize their comments. Mm what they say is what they feel, what they say is what they've observed. And oftentimes they can get to the heart of the matter very quickly. 
And so I believe that's possibly why there's so many references in Christian scripture to childlike faith, mm. to be truth telling and, and to not weigh in the balance politics, but to weigh uh, in the balance justice. And so, uh, yeah, I, I've been amazed at our own children and how they've approached uh, the issues before us. And they've provided tremendous bit of inspiration for me in the work in which I do, work in which my wife does. And uh, frankly, this book itself is a testament to that uh, courage and that, that testimony, that willingness to speak out, you know. And so, uh, again, uh, people have asked me and, uh, about why did I uh, go about the business of writing the children's book. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I necessarily went about that business. I think it wrote itself. Uh, this is simply a testimony of our family's odyssey over the last several years. And I felt uh, was compelled to share it in a broader context uh, to help other families who are engaged in uh, similar dialogue or who want to be. These are difficult conversations to have, particularly yeah. for uh, the parents of black and brown and indigenous and even Asian Muslim children. And if you uh, have children who are seeing persons within their community who are being oppressed, crushed to the earth, as it were, there is grief, mm. even amongst young people, right? Yes. And there's a lack of understanding as to why are these things happening? You know, when you tell a child that someone was shot with their hands in the air, well, that doesn't make sense. What type of threat is someone to someone else with their hands in the air? When you uh, tell someone that a young person that someone died or they learned that someone died uh, while they were out for a jog, what did they do uh, to justify uh, what happened? And so these are, you know, these are very harrowing conversations that we have had to have and we've continued to have to have. And it reminds me of James Baldwin's work when he did his presentation at Cambridge in debate, mm-hmm. where he talked about the fact that there's time in a black parent's life in particular, he locates that time around the age of 30, uh, where that parent becomes painfully aware of the fact that they are unable to protect their children from experiencing racial discrimination. That's a very sobering reflection. I, I would say that it, it can provide you a level of grief and mourning uh, because we all want what's best for our children. I believe that's true for the large majority of people. We give them the world. But when you become confronted with the fact that some of the issues that you yourself have faced, you will not be able to shield your child from facing, uh, that could be a very mournful uh, perspective. But uh, the hope is that even when we can't guard them or shield them from that experience, we can, to the best of our abilities, prepare them for it. And if we're willing to take a step further, we can help them discern how to change that reality. We can be about the business of raising up anti-racists. And uh, really that's my hope uh, for this book is that it would accomplish all of the above, uh, that it would provide an opportunity to create greater awareness amongst young people and ultimately help cultivate 
anti-racist. In reading the book, I think that will happen. One of the things I really appreciate, too, is that um, in the back of the book, you have some discussion questions focused for both parents to talk about, for leaders to talk about, for teachers to talk about. As a leader, as a parent, and having these conversations with your own kids, what would you, you mentioned as a parent kind of hitting that point where you have that grief and mourning about what your role will be. How did you deal with that yourself? How did you reconcile that? Sure. Well, first, let me acknowledge the tremendous work of the Muhammad Ali Center in preparing the study guide and activity guide, which, frankly, we put out before the book because so many parents were reaching out to me, reaching out to us for resources because of what was going on in our our country, particularly over the uh, spring and and through the summer. Uh, So first, I want to acknowledge their tremendous work. In reality, as Black parents, uh, and, and this has become more popularly known over the last several years. My first blog that went viral was was written about this, this idea of the talk Mm. uh, that black parents must have with their children, which is actually of necessity towards preserving their lives. There are certain things, unfortunately, uh, within our society that if you do as a young black person could bring to you immeasurable harm. It can either knock you off the path upon which you are on, or it could cost you your life. And so there, there are these lessons. Another way of thinking about it is that there are these black codes that you must express to young people very early on as a means of protecting them. And uh, you're derelict in your responsibilities if you fail to do so. It, it was imperative for me to tell my beautiful black boy as early as I could that anytime you make any type of purchase from the store, no matter if it's bubble gum or soda, get a receipt. Because it's very highly likely that before you make your way to uh, the front door, someone might accuse you of stealing and you'll need evidence to support the fact that you did not steal. There's all these conversations about what to do when you're pulled over by police, because unfortunately, uh, as black people in America, you will likely get pulled over by police. Uh, You'll likely get pulled over quite frequently. And it doesn't matter whether or not you reach a certain level in your mind of socioeconomic or educational status, there is a certain criminality of color and persecution of pigmentation in our nation uh, that always makes you the outsider, uh, where there are very few spaces where you actually belong. You don't necessarily belong in spaces that are deemed to be affluent or white spaces. And frankly, if you're in a black and impoverished space, you are perceived to be criminal. So how do you negotiate those spaces and engage with police in a way that will allow you prayerfully to come home at night? So these are very real conversations. And and even beyond that, to the adultification of black girls who are largely uh, sexualized at a very young age and the harm that comes to them, which also has historical rooting. You also have to begin those lessons with young black girls very early on. And so, You do this work by having very frank and honest conversations with your children. I don't know that along the spectrum of parenting that the majority of parents 
have that experience. I mean, there are certainly things you tell a child uh, not to do. Don't run in the street. You know, look both ways before you cross the street because of the harms that, that are present there. But very rarely do you embody the possibility of harm coming in someone's physical makeup, that just who you are is enough to bring the harm. That's a whole different psychology that you have to uh, give to, to children. And so I don't believe in falsified hope, nor do I believe in failing to address these real realities. Tamir Rice was 12 years old playing with a toy gun in a park and it cost him his life. We have to have these conversations frequently, but I also believe that there's a tremendous legacy of work and accomplishment in terms of moving things forward, bringing about progress. Progress is not uh, an accidental reality. It comes from very uh, hard work, but there is uh, a great level of evidence that shows that faithful work together and with God brings about a change. And that's the hope we hope to implant in the hearts of these young people, that as uh, tragic as things might appear, and they are tragic, uh, let's be very clear about that. There are persons in history and in present day who are effectuating change, and they can be part of that work. In speaking to that, and I know your work with the book and the Muhammad Ali Center, who have you looked to during this time? Well, gratefully, I've, I've never had to look very far. I come from a family of courageous servant leaders uh, who for generations have given their all, not simply to the advancement of our family or our community, but even to the nation at large. From my great, great, great grandfather who was born into slavery in North Carolina, a man by the name of William Leake, came to the state of Texas following the Civil War, was an AME preacher, uh, brought 5,000 individuals uh, into the AME church over the time of his ministry, and was one of the four founders of Paul Quinn College in 1872, although he did not have a formal education himself. Uh, my, my grandfather, who uh, was born into a family that knew poverty, uh, that uh, had great struggles during the Great Depression, who nearly died as a young man because of fever, who went on to become the first person in his family to graduate from high school, served in a U.S. military, uh, went to college, integrated uh, graduate school at Iowa State, went on to become a biology teacher, a coach uh, with several winning seasons, actually the Black uh, Texas uh, Hall of Fame for coaches, several persons who went on to the NFL and NBA, continued to progress to become an assistant principal, a principal, an assistant superintendent, a county commissioner, a county judge, and also served as the director of uh, social action for the NAACP, a role that caused him to receive visits from the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and he still pers persevered in the midst of that to bring about change, was nearly lynched also as a young man in Mississippi and was uh, able to escape in the back of, of, a, uh, of a truck bed. Uh, persons like him who endured so much and continued to commit so much uh, to the cause of peace and justice. My grandmother, who's now 92 years old, who as a young student, a co-ed, invited a young man by the name of Thurgood Marshall to Texas as they organized uh, for work. 
and I can go on and on. So basically, in my upbringing, uh, when I looked around the Thanksgiving table, I saw my heroes, and uh, I gleaned from their stories and felt this unction and call to join in that legacy of work, whether it be in education, business, political or social action or service in the church. Uh, beyond that, obviously, uh, Dr. King is a tremendous influence for me. Uh, Tupac Amaru Shakur is a tremendous uh, influence for me. Uh, I've led civil rights pilgrimages for the last 15 years and have had the opportunity to meet a number of tremendous persons who made great contributions to that legacy. And so whether it was time spent with John Lewis or with Andrew Young or with Amelia Boynton Robinson or the recently uh, deceased Robert Gretz, uh, the, the white uh, minister and member of the Montgomery Improvement Association. I go on and on, but I've been blessed to be in the presence of a great number of women and men, Joanne Bland in Selma, Vera Harris and Richard Harris in Montgomery, uh, Calvin Woods in Birmingham. I mean, people, some that are well known uh, in the annals of history, others whose names are, are not readily remembered, but who made tremendous sacrifices. Th those are my inspirations. Uh, in February, uh, before the pandemic slowed us and caused mm. us to retreat, I had the chance to interview and be in the presence of Sarah Collins Rudolph, who was one of uh, the little girls present on September 15, 1963, when that bomb was exploded. Right. And as I interviewed her, I sat on her right side and was able to study the right side of her face. And now all these many years later, you can still see the scar tissue framing the eye that she lost in the blast. Mm. It reminded me of the wounds of Christ when you peered into his hands and were invited to place your fingers in the holes, the wounds that were mm -hmm. there to bear witness of the brutalities. Uh, seeing those scars did the same, but it also was a point of empowerment mm. that these losses, that these scars did not hinder progress, that it in fact causes her to continue to share her story and continue to seek justice even now, uh, seeking uh, reparations from the state of Alabama for its failures to provide protection and incited violence during that era. So uh, again, these are my heroes. Um, and you know, even beyond that, even closer still, uh, I am amazed by the family uh, God has allowed me to steward along with my wife. Uh, they are heroes in and of themselves. Uh, they are my greatest inspiration and uh, my greatest hopes in many ways for the future. The book talks about that. I mean, in the title, for beautiful black boys who believe in a better world. That comes from a place, or at least it sounds like to me, comes the title comes from a place of hope. Yes, it is hopeful. I, I, I pray that it is. I, I also, and it's a lengthy title, I know, but we were hoping to accomplish a number of things with I one like it. set. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. And, and, and um, one of the things is that very rarely <clears throat> do you find beauty, black and boys associated with each other, but it's very important. It's, it is. Uh, it's a redeeming statement. It allows them to embrace uh, not just their uh, humanity, 
but their uh, their beauty. And you know, there was a study done by the American Psychological Association a few years ago. Mm. It said that young uh, black boys have uh, an additional four. Uh, up to 4.5 years added to their age by uh, police officers. Mm. So that when a, when police officers may engage a 10-year-old, they treat that child as though he's 14 and a half, almost 15 years old. A 15-year-old as though they're nearly 20. A 16-year-old as though they're, you know, 21 and on and on, right? And that's a challenge because that robs them of the ability to be children. Mm-hmm. And you see that happening so often in our society. I'll never forget uh, three, uh, a few young white boys, teenagers, broke into the home of an NBA player a few years ago in Florida. And his wife and children were in the home as they broke in. And the family was obviously terrified. Uh, the NBA player was away from his home at the time. And I'll never forget that basically law enforcement, when they were looking into the case, uh, they basically said, uh, boys will be boys. Mm. And that was their response. You know, boys will be boys. There's really nothing to this. We're not going to do much about it. But then I've also seen young black boys uh, selling water bottles uh, on the street and become arrested and uh, accosted, you know, for that action. And I find it'd be fascinating. So for beautiful black boys who believe in the world is a hopeful presentation uh, because I believe that you can't create what you don't believe in. Uh, you can't manifest what you don't already see. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that there are beautiful black boys and girls and children in general who embrace their unique gifts and graces and who have the courage to see beyond what we currently have to make something better. And in doing so, they join their forebears who did the same, who had the capacity to envision a nation free of chattel slavery when they were still in bonds, who had the vision and the foresight to view a nation uh, without the very rigid lines of segregation that we saw uh, during the civil rights era in the time in which they lived. And even though those were radical ideas at the time uh, don't now achieve, I believe that we have a generation of beautiful black boys who will have the capacity to see a world void of racial violence, police violence, and gun violence. when many within our generation have accepted these things as normative. Well, during the last six months, as the pandemic has gone on and actually seen the violence that is happening to black and brown people, because we have cell phones that can record that. It's not like it didn't happen before six months ago. Um, It's been going on for hundreds of years. During this time and just this... uh, intensity of grief and pain and loss. What have you learned about us as a community, as a country, and what have you learned about God during this time? It's a very interesting question, and I appreciate it. You're absolutely right. These are not uh, recent perils. I'm always careful to remind uh, 
anyone who will listen that Dr. King was talking about police brutality in his I Have a Dream speech. And he himself was a part of those who suffered. And I also know that you know the very origins of policing in this, our nation are the slave patrols, uh, which were intended to ensnare black and brown bodies. This is an interesting thing that I've learned. I believe that much of what we've seen in this nation has been because of dual pandemics. Uh, the pandemic of the coronavirus and the pandemic of white supremacy and how they have intersected. I find it very interesting that there are people who are now very supportive of or more supportive of objectives that will bring about equity in our society now that there are issues that they are facing. Mm -hmm. The idea of a guaranteed income that Dr. King and so many others have advocated for years was unattractive until uh, we had a large populace lose their jobs who needed additional uh, support. And now it doesn't seem so bad, right? right. The idea of universal health care, making health care a basic right and removing this idea of pre-existing conditions to disqualify you from care, uh, that was really politicized. But now that we have uh, this virus that doesn't care whether you are rich or poor, it seems like a pretty good idea now. And so unfortunately, it has taken two pandemics instead mm -hmm. of the just one to bring about uh, some of this change or at least the conversation of the change, but that's where we are. And what I've learned more so uh, in this time is that it's only when we see our shared humanity does change actually come. Right. Uh, and all too often, unfortunately in this nation, that change has come because someone has died. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the most disheartening aspect of it all is it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. We don't have to wait for people to die or suffer great harm in order to do what is right. But historically, we've only moved after uh, there's been great loss of life and bloodshed. But what I've also learned is that there is a mantle being passed uh, it seems like every day we are hearing of another uh, hero, heroine of movement and justice, whether they be in the Supreme Court, whether they be a legacy of the civil rights movement, people who have helped frame our nation and, and mm. move us to where we are, who are now taking their rest. And there's this urgency for persons of goodwill who will step up and who will make similar sacrifices. And I think more so than anything else, uh, this year has been issuing a call to people and inviting them to become a part of the work of bending the art towards justice. Because it doesn't just bend itself. Mm -mm. You've got to be a part of, uh, of those who dare to bend it. And so, uh, again, that's how I view this summer. It's been this continuous invitation. Persons have taken their rents. The invitation has been who will step up, who will stand, who will commit themselves to a better world. And uh, gratefully, it appears that there have been many people across the nation and the world who've been accepting that call. One of the tragedies that you talk about in the book is a tragedy that happened here in Dallas when uh, there was a sniper who uh, shot and killed five first responders here in Dallas. And I wondered if, if that was 
sort of the beginning of you thinking about writing this book. For us at Faith and Grief, it actually launched a project that we have called the Memorial Arch. Each holiday, traditional holiday season, we host a place for people to come and remember their loved ones down at Clyde Warren Park. And that came out of us realizing that we wanted to address the community grief that was happening after that incident in July of 2016. And we also wanted to give the families a place to come and mark their time um, because it turned out that end of the year was about six months after, and that's when the casseroles start, stop coming and the news media goes away and it gets quiet and the grief shows up. And so we chose to help them honor their loved ones. But it really launched a whole project for us um, to allow anyone to come down and remember those who they love who've died. Was that one of the tragedies that sort of got you thinking about writing this book? Or was that just unfortunately one of many that prompted that? Well, I won't diminish the importance of that moment, uh, particularly for me personally. Um, I was actually one of the speakers that night, uh, invited to address uh, the crowd that had gathered, a massive crowd, who had come with grief. Mm. And I always want to acknowledge that, is that grief met us even before our program began. These were persons who had borne witness to two executions in subsequent days, uh, beginning with Flan uh, Alton Sterling and then Philando Castile. Mm -hmm. So there was a great deal of grief even before we uh, began speaking our first words. And I helped marshal that march and was there with those police officers and first responders who were guiding us and who were making sure that we were safe uh, from uh, those persons who uh, could cause us harm in their vehicles. I provided the benediction at the end of that gathering and I'll never forget us departing to our vehicles after a very peaceful night. It was time to go home. And it was as people were casually walking to their cars, uh, walking back to the origination point of the march and rally that we began to hear the gunfire and uh, began to run and take cover. And so that was obviously a tremendous experience uh, for all of us. I think I was awake for the next 46 hours addressing media from across the world. I will say this, it was an opportunity that I think our city and nation failed to learn from. Mm. And I think that's possibly the part of the greatest grief. Dallas had an opportunity, our nation had an opportunity to really look at the harm that we were causing to each other. And we didn't take that opportunity seriously. We wanted to give lip service to change and progress and put forth programs and events as opposed to true policy change. And unfortunately, I believe we find ourselves in similar situations that we find ourselves today because we missed that moment. Mm -hmm. My prayers are continuously, I've, I've actually been with family members of police officers that were lost that night. I've also been with family members of persons who've lost their loved ones to police brutality. Mm -hmm. And you know, the interesting thing I found the tears all flow the same way. The heartbreak is just as palpable for both. Mm -hmm. 
uh, there's an empty seat at the table around everyone's Thanksgiving table. You know, that idea that Dr. King wanted us to embrace that we are woven together in the single garment of destiny, that what impacts one impacts the other. Uh, and so that's where we find ourselves, you know. So this was an incident that in the trajectory of the book must be included because of the experience of our own family mm -hmm. uh, and our church members who were present there as well. Uh, and the questions that our children asked following that tragedy. But I think the tragedy continues to call out to us and ask us, what are we going to do? Uh, what are we going to do to provide care for members of our military who are committing suicide at an alarming rate because of grief, who are suffering all types of post-traumatic stress disorder and like, unfortunately, the shooter that night have not received the type of support that they need. What are we going to do for them? What are we going to do for the families of those who have been lost to police brutality? And what are we going to do for a police department uh, who we expect to fix things uh, that are beyond their control? How are we going to help police officers be able to police in ways that actually bring uh, safety and equity to our, our city and not expect them to solve every issue uh, within our community, many of which that they are ill-equipped to solve. There are a lot of things that this moment calls us to consider and to have the courage to bring about change. And my prayer is always that it will not take another tragedy in order to bring it to pass. I mean, this past October, we had the family of both and John at our church mm -hmm. and we're sharing with them in a press conference. And once again, here I was with yet another family that had lost a loved one to this violence. And because of that death, there's some things that happened in our city that had been long delayed. Mm -hmm. But why does it take someone to die for us to do what's right? That's a tough question. Why it's does difficult. it? Why does it have to to start with a tragedy before justice and what is right is the norm? It boggles the mind, and I think that's what I love about your book for kids is you're wrestling with that. The fact that this doesn't make sense, that it doesn't, it's not fair, it's cruel and difficult. But it's, it's a reality that we've allowed to become the norm. Yes. And, and that's why, I, I, again, I don't believe in a falsified hope. I believe mm. we must be truth tellers. And every season of progress, unfortunately, in our nation has come with bloodshed. We have a revolutionary war. We have a civil war. We have a civil rights movement with so many lives lost. And now we have another movement for justice that is marked by the dramatic loss of black life. If we've had three reconstruction eras, as some have argued in our nation from the first in the 1860s and 1870s, the second during the 50s and 60s in the civil rights movement, and now having crossed through the 20 teens into the 2020s, why has it always had to come because of bloodshed? Mm. 
why has there been such an inordinate amount of, of life lost for us to uh, embrace our mutual humanity? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's the hope for the better world right. is that there's a generation who may awaken to the fact that it doesn't have to be this way, that we don't have to visit grief upon ourselves and upon others in order to bring about the progress <clears throat> that we all deserve that we can make a difference and that we can bring change and we can do it, frankly, should we have the courage uh, once and for all, that we can create a nation where people are fed, where they're cared for, where they are able to dream their wildest dreams and accomplish them, uh, where they are not bombarded by threats and fears of uh, just living each day. I mean, that is our greatest hope. Um, and we must make sacrifices now in order to achieve it. Well, speaking of hope, right now or, you know, in the last many years, where do you find comfort and hope? Uh, I find it in scripture. I find it in a relationship with God and prayer. I find it in fellowship and family. I find it in books. I find it in ideas, I find it in art, I find it in music, I find it in the spirit that reverberates when you look someone in their eyes, I find it in birds chirping, mm -hmm. I find it in the sun that rises each and every day, despite the harrowing events of the last day, we are encompassed with hope. Hope is ever present with us if you know where to look for it. Mm. And I find it in many places, probably more than anything else. I do find hope in the hearts, minds of our children. And uh, for that, I'm grateful. That's good. So um, kind of switching gears here a little bit, what do you think Tupac would be saying right now? Tupac would say a number of things. He would continue to remind us of our failures to rightly prioritize things. Tupac would tell us that we have money for wars, but we can't feed the poor. And he would challenge us to take care of one another. Uh, Tupac would ask us such pressing theological questions like, is there a heaven for a G? Which suggests that we interrogate our theological leanings Mm -hmm. and ask whether or not God's heart is big enough to embrace us all. I think Tupac would say, as he said in an interview, uh, that I might not change the world, but I hope to spark the minds of the ones that will and would remind us of the importance of ideas, that every true and important change first uh, has its origins as an idea and that we must have courageous ideas in order to bring about courageous results. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Tupac would talk about redemption, about his relationship with his mother, despite uh, the challenges she faced with addiction and would uh, invite us not to give up on people, uh, not to throw them away because of the difficulties and struggles that they experience but to always leave room for change and to be present to help them along the way. I think uh, Tupac is a very wise guy. He has some very important statements uh, to make about 
wealth disparity uh, recorded uh, in a final track on Kendrick Lamar's masterpiece to Pimp a Butterfly. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would really challenge us to consider uh, what it means to be a nation as we are right now with the greatest uh, wealth disparity that we've ever had. Uh, so yeah, Tupac would say a lot of stuff. I'd say that we ought to listen. Thanks for sharing that. I thought about that when you mentioned him as one of your heroes. There's a lot of discussion about the theology of Tupac. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and certainly, uh, you know, in the last couple of decades, uh, a lot more has been explored about his music and his poetry and what he was saying. Um, and again, and he himself a victim of gun violence. Yeah. You know, I've been to the place where his life was taken. And uh, unfortunately, I think Tupac would have something to say about that, about how we lose so much genius before it's time mm. uh, because we have a nation that has failed to do what is necessary related to its gun laws. I appreciate all the words that you said. I'm so grateful for this book because I think it will spark a discussion and hopefully be a really helpful tool for parents. I've been blown away by the response so far. Uh, the book reached number one yeah. on Amazon. <laughs> I saw that the other day. That's awesome. <laughs> it was uh, tremendous. And there have been persons who've already reached out and told me they've read the book several times with mm -hmm. their children. And that's what it's about, is, is to have a ready resource. But I will say this. I think the time for having these conversations with children is not after the next challenge right. or the next tragedy, but right now to build up their muscles for what uh, they may face and what we might continue to experience as we seek change. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that the book does that, I'm very grateful. I'm very honored that it's been received well. I'm very grateful that um, parents and others are creating spaces for their children. Uh, it's been beautiful to see the pictures that are being sent to me of children holding the book up mm -hmm. and embracing it, which I think speaks to the meaning of the words and particularly of uh, my son's story for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, for all these things, I'm very grateful. And what does your son think about being the uh, center of the story? <laughs> you know, uh, that's a great question. I think that's still unfolding. My son is very much like myself. Uh, he processes and thinks deeply and then comes to a conclusion or a statement. He's not one who rushes mm. right away to, to speak. And so uh, I think he's been in the process in some regards of taking it in. Mm. I think there is a level of recognition and value though to the power of story. And I think he recognizes that his own story um, has meaning beyond himself. And to that extent, um, I think that he is coming into an awareness of uh, the power of sharing your witness and testimony of, with others. Um, and we'll, we'll see what other thoughts he has as we continue. How old is he now? He's 14, 14. now, just okay. turned 14. Okay. I was going to say, yeah. I figured he was probably middle schoolish age. Or mm -hmm. Is he in high school yet? Be high school next year. Next year, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. when your uh, dad decides to write a book and you get to be the middle of the story. I'm sure that's an interesting situation, but good for him for uh, allowing you to do that. <laughs> well, the amazing, the amazing thing is that our son, my son, has read all of my books. Mm -hmm. 
which is interesting, uh, even the adult nonfiction books. As a matter of fact, he was the child in second grade uh, who was taking Stakes as Higher, Race, Faith, and Hope for America to school for their free reading time, where other people were, were taking uh, picture books. And yes. so he, he is a uniquely gifted young man who I'm very excited to see what he'll ultimately do and become. Mm, you sound like a proud father. Very. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Thank you for the book. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Michael. Have a great one. You too. Faith and Grief Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Donate today at faithandgrief.org.